Today's program is about the medical care transgender kids receive. We're publishing this podcast at the beginning of June 2022. And as we do, 15 states have either restricted access to gender affirming care or are considering laws that would do so. These figures come from the Williams Institute at the UCLA School of Law. Six states also include penalties for parents who seek out gender-affirming health care for their children, and such efforts are being classified as child abuse in some places. Insurance companies are being barred from paying for this health care, and close to 60,000 transgender youth are at risk for losing access to health care because of state bans and policies. That's the backdrop for this episode. Since recommended health care is being criminalized around the country, we wanted to know what the accepted standards of care are when it comes to assessing and treating pediatric patients whose gender expression is different from what was assigned at birth. For pediatricians and endocrinologists and behavioral health and family care specialists, what are the accepted standards for treating trans kids? And along the way, we'll hear some stories from trans kids themselves and the people who love them. Because if we're certain of anything, we're certain that those stories matter. Coming to understand yourself. I very vividly remember like being always slightly uncomfortable. Felt like I was acting in a role of being a girl. I remember cleaning out his older brother's closet. And I remember him going through the bin and pulling out his older brother's stuff. And I kept saying, you have your own clothes, you don't need his hand-me-downs. And that's what he wanted to wear. Yeah, and he would have been all of, what, two, three? three? Yeah, that's my first memory, too, is him insisting that he wanted to wear boys' clothing, and in particular, boys' underwear. That always stood out because it's private, right? It's not like it's about your public presentation. Right. A lot of it is, at the beginning, listening to the family, validating their experience, letting them know that this is normal. It's very normal for children to think about their gender and to explore their gender. You don't need to do a lot of things otherwise that allow them to be who they want to be. Coming up, the standards of care for trans kids on the Hear Me Now podcast that comes to you from the Providence Institute for Human Caring. I'm glad you're listening. Stay with us. Hey, everybody. I'm Sean Collins. This episode of the podcast is multifaceted. And because of that, I want to give you a little bit of a roadmap of what to expect and where you can go for additional information. What you're listening to now is the main edition of the podcast. And coming up, I'll be talking with clinicians about gender affirming care as healthcare. But alongside of this main podcast, we're also publishing bonus audio files that you can listen to at your leisure. Longer conversations between people who have some experience with the issues healthcare for trans and non-binary people pose. 
You'll hear from trans kids, for instance, and youths. You'll hear parents talking about raising a trans child alongside of cisgender siblings. We've excerpted some of these bonus conversations to play back for our clinicians to hear and comment upon on this main edition of the podcast. So you'll hear small excerpts from those longer conversations. But if you want to hear the whole conversation, we've published that alongside and you can go and listen to it. And we encourage you to. You'll find these bonus conversations on our website, hearmenowpodcast.org. And you'll probably also see them published alongside of this main podcast episode on whatever aggregator you use to sort your podcasts. Confused yet? Sorry. Bottom line, go to hearmenowpodcast.org and you'll find it all neatly arranged. And there really is a treasure trove of stories waiting for you to explore. We've also included a list of resources having to do with trans plus healthcare. And we've included a glossary too, if you're not completely familiar with terms that are being used in the conversations. So, Let's get started. I'm really happy to introduce our guests for this episode, three folks with a wealth of experience. Ponrat Pakpreo is a pediatrician focusing on adolescent health. She practices at the Providence Medical Group in Spokane, Washington. Marcy Drury-Brown is a pediatric endocrinologist at Providence St. Vincent Medical Center in Portland, And Bentley Moses is the Senior Program Manager for the Providence Institute for Human Caring's Trans Plus Health Initiative. I am so glad the three of you are with me today. Welcome, all three of you. Thank you so much, Sean. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you. So can someone start us off by describing for us how you begin to evaluate a young child, who you're seeing and who says that their gender is not what they were assigned at birth. Well, Sean, I can jump in and talk a little bit about that. This is Dr. Marcy Brown in Portland. Yes. So as a pediatric endocrinologist, um, these children get referred to me um, to help the parents really begin to process what's going on with their child. Um, I may not be providing any specific medical treatment per se, but a lot of times it's talking with the parents and talking with the child and beginning to develop a rapport with them. For the family, a lot of times it's not something they anticipated or necessarily expected. Although in some cases they can say, you know, my child has always said this. From the time that they could name their gender, they have told me that their gender is this. Um, And for some, it's something that's really developing. And so a lot of it is at the beginning listening to the family, validating their experience, um, and letting them know that this is normal. It's very normal for children to um, think about their gender um, and to explore their gender. And so at, at a young age, like four or five or six, you just let them explore their gender. You don't need to do a lot of um, things otherwise, but allow them to be who they want to be. Um, and so if a child is very insistent that they are called a certain name or they get wear certain clothes, that's okay. It's okay to allow that to happen and let them know that all they need to do is support and love their child and, um, and, and they'll work through it. Um, you know, you can certainly get them involved with um, 
like a child psychologist who can also talk with the child and talk with the family and provide support for that. Um, a lot of times there can be issues with the school or maybe with other people in the family. So it's helpful for the family to get resources on, on how to navigate those situations. Um, but it's not about trying to tell the child who they are or aren't. It's about accepting the child for who they are. Right. Dr. Pat Creel? Yeah, um, most of my patients that I see are uh, older children, so 11 to 12, um, average age is probably more like 14 or 15. And many of them will tell me that I have felt different since I was a young child, but I could never find the words. I just knew I was different. I, I don't know how to describe it. I couldn't tell anybody because I didn't really get it, so I just carried on with my life. But as I've gotten older, um, I realize I'm different, and then they find the words to describe how they feel about their gender. And so it is a conversation. And um, oftentimes, by the time they see me, it's a conversation that they've had with their primary care provider, uh, their pediatrician or family practice doc, um, and sometimes with their families. But that's not always the case. Sometimes these kids come to me, which is slightly awkward, uh, for a discussion about gender dysphoria, but the parent doesn't know. So it, it can it can be quite an interesting visit, but um, we usually get permission from the child to start exploring some of these issues during the visit so we can have a meaningful conversation uh, with the parents. What do you do in that instance? Uh, how, how do you bring this topic up with parents who, who perhaps have suspected something and not said anything um, or weren't willing to bring it up with their with their doctor? Um, how do you how do you broach the subject? How do you bring it up? Well, we start with the referral first, uh, and if we get any kind of hint that they have not disclosed to their parents, and so uh, to understand what the referral is for, uh, we go back to the primary and say, "Hey, have you spoken to this child, this patient, about why you're referring them to me, and how they want to bring up the topic?" And so sometimes they'll actually call the patient themselves first to say. Hey, how do we how do we talk about this so your parent understands why you're going to go see this adolescent medicine doctor? Other times, when they are in the visit and they have not disclosed disclosed to their parents, um, I'll have a separate private conversation with them to talk about how do you want to do this. And some kids don't want to disclose to their parents for quite a while, and so um, we don't use their preferred name or their preferred pronoun with the parent in the room. But when they're not in the room, they ask me to use their preferred name and their pronoun, which is fine. Um, I do my best. And um, But talk about kind of how do we talk to your parents about this. Um, first, it's how are you doing? And then how do we bring your parents into this conversation um, so we can kind of move forward? And it can take a couple of visits. Bentley Moses? I want to comment just on Dr. Pacprio's uh, just way that you have worked with patients in caring for them in the way that's empowering for them. You brought up, um, you know, using a patient's preferred names and pronouns in one setting, and then, um, you know, their given name and pronouns in another setting. And I think that that way of caring for patients is something that's really emerging, this awareness that, um, people's process is really personal and um, empowering people in their healthcare setting to follow that path in the way that's right for them and trusting that trans patients, trans people know what they need. Um, and that even if it's not a linear process, <laughs> even if it's something that um, might be 
a longer process or you might need to make a decision and um, wait a little while to think about it. Um, having providers really give patients all of the tools and all of the options and empower them to make those decisions themselves is something I'm seeing more and more um, in healthcare. And I'm, I'm really excited about that. I think that that feels empowering for patients and it feels empowering to respect what a patient really needs to be their best self through healthcare interventions and through that process. Yeah, it strikes me that that is true both for adult patients, but also for pediatric and adolescent patients. It's the same thing, yeah. To have your identity honored in that way, it may be the first time or one of the first times that they've encountered that outside of a very small circle of trusted friends. Yeah, I would agree with that, actually. And, and it's interesting to me that some of the adolescents that I see who have been seeing therapists for a long time haven't actually even told their therapist. And, and being in a setting where they feel comfortable to, to drive the agenda and, and guide the process and be the person to say, hey, this is when I want to disclose, this is how I want to disclose, um, you know, being the first person they talk to about it is, is quite a privilege. Um, and I just want to add, um, so when we talk about disclosure to parents, sometimes um, the kids will ask me to have that conversation with the parent in the room with them. But at other times, um, we'll talk about how to do it at home, and they'll set the timing and the setting and to do at home and have the support people they want around them when they decide to do it. But it is, it is a very brave and, and vulnerable thing to do. Yeah, well, awesome to be trusted with those disclosures, Dr. Peckpreo. Ponrat Pekpreo is an adolescent medicine physician in Spokane. We also are talking with Bentley Moses, who's the senior program manager for the Trans Plus Health Initiative here at the Providence Institute for Human Caring. And joining us from Portland is Marcy Brown, a pediatric endocrinologist at the Providence St. Vincent Medical Center. We're talking about gender-affirming care for transgender kids. Over the last couple months, um, in preparation for this episode, we've sought out individuals who have a particular story to tell about their transition when they were young and the way it happened and the things that helped them, the things that hindered them. The first excerpt that we want to play is from a conversation between Aaron and Sam. Aaron is the mother of Sam, who is a 19-year-old trans man. Erin tells us about a phone call that she received years ago from Sam's fourth grade teacher. She said, just wanted to let you know that Sam seems to have been having a hard time and broke into tears in the middle of sex ed today and didn't really know why and just wanted to help me be aware. And I tried to talk with you after school, but you were very, very private. There was not sort of a way in. Clearly, it was upsetting to you. And it wasn't until years later that I realized like, oh, no wonder that was so upsetting to Sam, because there probably was a sense for you that you did not fit in these categories that you were supposed to be in. And at that time, like there was no talk at all of it was kind of weird, like being the age that I am, because it's half of my life is set in the ways of like early 90s sex education and things like that. And like health classes and like 
discussing. There was no such thing as discussing trans queer topics, um, queer sex, like how to have safe queer sex. There was nothing like that. It was like very old school, you know, like textbook, uh, which is wrong, really very wrong. And like, I'm not even sure that that's changed, but I remember like growing older and being in high school, it changed a little bit, but I was always, always, always advocating for myself and advocating for that change, but didn't really know how to, because I was so scared being like really one of the only queer kids that I knew like in my immediate circle or like at the school, it's pretty few and far between like growing up in Montana. I very vividly remember like just being always slightly uncomfortable. For me, it felt like I was like acting in a role of being a girl. Like it never really was quite there. And I was just kind of like feeding off of what other people around me were doing. And like, it's a little bit like I was like a sociopath, like trying to figure out human emotions, but I was just trying to figure out how to be a girl and doing really bad at it because I was not. And I was like, just, that was not who I was like, but I was friends with all these girls and loved them and like wanted to talk to them. And I still am friends with mostly women because I feel so comfortable being that way. And I think I express myself in a pretty feminine way now, just from growing up, you know, being put into that box of being a, a girl. And I don't like completely, I think that a lot of trans people, not saying that this is wrong in any way because there's no right way to be trans or express your feelings. But I was just, I don't completely disconnect myself from that. Like there was a point where I presented as a girl, not that I was one, but that's a very important part of my life is like, you know, I went through girlhood and like, I had hard times, like, you know, like I experienced sexism and in those ways and like had the very kind of a little bit like typical like mom and daughter relationship of like talking about like getting your period for the first time or getting your like first care package with a tampon or whatever. But it was just like really hard for me because I felt so uncomfortable. So I completely shut you out like as a mom and I could just think I just took it out on you. I think that's kind of what a lot of girls go through. The big issue yeah. I remember was every time we went on a vacation or something and then, and you'd have to have a bathing suit yeah. to go to the beach or something that just was such a trigger for you. And it was so challenging to try and find the right clothes for you. And, you know, now, of course, looking back, I can look at that and see, well, of course, nothing felt right because it was the wrong thing. You know, now it makes sense. That's Erin Pelger talking with her son, Sam. You can hear the rest of their conversation on our website, hearmenowpodcast.org. These conversations today are being archived at the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress. Turning back to our guests, um, what do you all hear in that exchange between a mother and son? Dr. Brown? I would say you know, a little bit of hindsight is twenty twenty, and And that is really common. But when parents look back, they can start to see things. Oh, well, now this makes more sense. Um, and the mom certainly verbalizes that really well. And I really appreciated what Sam said about say, honoring his history. His history in included girlhood, as he said. Um, and so he understands some aspects of that. 
and it's a part of his life and he doesn't want to I think necessarily negate those years. Those are valuable years in many ways, even if he wasn't at that time able to live as he really is. But that that concept of being able to be his affirmed self sounds so much happier, but also being able to value his overall life, I think is really um, insightful. Yeah, I agree with you. I So often you hear people use metaphors of journey when talking about their life and Mm -hmm. he seems to be honoring part of that journey exactly yeah i love that um you know in that journey while i'm sure for sam there were a lot of things that were confusing or unclear or you know i think sam kind of alluded to there's you know being in class and there is no example there's no model there's no like image that you can look at and be like this is me and yet Sam knew who Sam was, you know, and those threads of that are are already there in Sam's story from a pretty young age. And Sam's reaction to that class or the way that Sam was feeling is different. And, you know, we say different a lot because I feel like there's like often no other word to describe how complex it feels to be you and be trans in a world where those models aren't always the center of a conversation or the examples we have at school or the people that we grew up around. Um, and, and yet, you know, Sam is very, very adamant that Sam knew who Sam was and there's difficulties in that journey, but I, I just love how like affirming that is too, to remember that even in hindsight, you can look back and say, yeah, that was always there. <laughs> Even if it was a little messy to kind of get where I was going, it was always there. What I heard from mom um, during that, that conversation was love. I heard a lot of love in her voice, um, but I also heard uncertainty and bewilderment during um, Sam's adolescence. <laughs> What's going on? I don't understand what this is. Um, and and for probably both of them being unable to articulate what that bewilderment was, you know, how can we make this better, but not really understanding what it was that needed to be better. I think uh, a really poignant moment in that excerpt that we heard was when Sam basically said, and I, I took it out on you, mom. And um, I just, there was a sort of brutal honesty to that, that you don't hear a lot of 19 year olds sort of own up to it. and I, I, I was just impressed by it. I want to play another piece of tape for you. This is Holly and Evie. Uh, Holly is the mother of Evie, who is a 14-year-old trans girl. She transitioned when she was seven. And she sat down with her mom and talked about that transition. Do you remember in your first grade classroom what, uh, like what happened, what we did? Mm-hmm. So we read the book, I Am Jazz. Remember your teacher read I Am Jazz? Oh, yeah. And then we had a conversation about the word identify. Identify. Which I don't think that that would, should even be a conversation now because identify kind of almost Boop. invalidates who you actually are. All I remember at the mm-hmm. time was one girl raised her hand and she said, well, I'm a girl and lots of people think that only boys can like Minecraft, but I like Minecraft. Do you remember that? <laughs> I Lord, don't remember Lauren. that. And a, a boy, I think it was Nathan, 
raised his hand and said, Hey, I like Minecraft too. And he pointed at his <laughs> Minecraft shirt. And then that's what it became about. The first graders didn't care. See, it, it proves that homophobia and transphobia is taught. Yeah. It's learned from yeah. the parents. Yeah. So if you don't raise your kids in a hateful environment, they won't be homophobic yeah. or transphobic or yeah. racist. Yeah. There will always be those like implicit biases, but as long as you don't actively teach them that white people are the best or that cisgender and hetero people are the only right way to be, they will be accepting. Yeah. Because that's the first thing that they learn. Yeah. First thing they should learn. But then again, yeah, I'm biased and I understand that everyone has different beliefs, but I just personally cannot agree with someone. Well, but I mean, everybody has the right to exist as they are, yeah. as who they are. And that's what we believe. And yeah, but I mean... Or yeah. Some people don't believe that. Well, that, I mean... But you're right, though. It's taught. And when it was taught in your first grade classroom that everybody has a different identity and has a way, you know, of, who, of being who they are, everybody could accept it. And then those three kids who did bully you weren't in your class. They hadn't been a part of that conversation, right? Mm-hmm. But then it's like those kids kind of left you alone too, right? Yeah, except this one, the one girl, um, the other one. Oh, okay. She, the next year in second grade after I transitioned, uh-huh. was sitting with her friend and pointed at me and said, that's a boy. Oh, mm-hmm. And was like, I want to sit next to dead name. I want to sit next to him. Oh. Mm-hmm. And she looked at me when she said it. She knew what she was doing. Mm-hmm. And it just made me angry mm-hmm. so burst a blood vessel mm-hmm. what did it mean to you to get to change your name and gender legally uh it, it was just for me one step closer to becoming a you know quote-unquote normal girl so we went to court and there was like probably 40 people in the courtroom So the judge comes in, you know, sweeps into the room in his robe and sits down and and basically reads us the right act, says that a seven-year-old shouldn't dictate to the court what their life should be like. A seven-year-old can't possibly know what their gender is. And and we had a doctor's note, which we had been told, this is what you need to change the gender marker. So we brought the doctor's note in with the exact wording that we had been told she should do. She had signed it. And he said, well, this, I can't admit this. This isn't evidence. And I was like, well, this is what we've been told to do. Well, that's hearsay. Didn't it take a total of like two years? Yeah, it took two years for your name to find a bit. And then we got another attorney because our other attorney went on a leave of absence. And she filed in a different county with your new legal name and then just asked for the gender marker. And it was so easy. And it was like a no issue at all with the judge who just signed your gender marker change. Yeah. That was the worst. It's Holly and Evie talking about some of the steps in Evie's gender transition seven years ago. You can hear more of their story on our website, hearmenowpodcast.org. Let's talk about this issue that the judge brings up. Can a kid know themselves well enough to start a transition or start the course towards a transition? Is it possible for a young person to know themselves. I think a lot of critics would say, no, they can't, kids can't be trusted. You can't believe what a kid, little kid wants. 
and clearly almost everyone that we've heard from in the storytelling project has told us otherwise, that they were young and they knew what was going on. They knew something was different. They may have lacked the language to describe it, but they knew that they were different. Well, Sean, I'll go ahead and start with that one. This is Dr. Marcy Brown. I really find the question to be a double standard because what people question what a child who identifies as their assigned gender at birth, they don't question whether they can tell what their gender identity is. It's assumed that they know what their gender identity is and that it's fine because it aligns with what was assigned at birth. But if they can know what their gender identity is, then why shouldn't any other child with whatever gender identity know what their gender identity is? So there's a double standard there in that we allow it if it's for those who fall along the you know, socially accepted route. But if somebody is not quite along that route, then we question it. Um, and so I, I just, you know, I'm going to call that out as a double standard, which it is. Um, but then I can, you know, we can go back to developmental, you know, pediatrics and, you know, do kids know gender and know their gender identity? Yes. Yes, they do. They understand that at a very young age um, and can speak to it. And there's plenty of examples of that, but it's, it's, it's understood within the developmental frame that they understand that. And that kids in that like early school age will experiment with their gender and with their gender expression. And that's a normal part of development as well. Um, and so we, we should be able to allow all of that. I would agree with that. Dr. Pacpreo. There's a lot to childhood and adolescent development that's dynamic. And I think one of the most important roles for parents to have is to support along the way. Um, nothing is ever written in stone and um, everybody has a different trajectory and we need to have that space to kind of figure out who we are um, and to articulate the words that are different. And I'm, I'm actually struck between these two stories of different uh, um, uh, school environments that fostered finding the words to say who I am versus, you know, a school environment that just was very uh, binary either or and I don't know where I fit in. And so... Um, you know, very much more positive experience, hmm. I think, in the second story. Bentley Moses, what do you make of Evie's story? Evie is so self-aware. <laughs> I mean, and everything that Evie is sharing in that story is just striking how self-aware Evie is and how aware Evie is of other people and what they're going through. Um, and I just was really, uh, I don't know, uplifted by how... Um, clear Evie is about how Evie understands the world, what is happening for other people and what they might be going through and Evie's courage and conviction about what's right and what makes sense. And I think that, um, you know, Evie talking very clearly about what Evie's experience was, knowing who Evie is and how um, they wanted to express their gender identity you know, most people, if you ask them, like, when was the first time you knew you had this aspect of your personality or you were um, this person, they'll tell you it was very young. I've always liked this thing or I've always been this person. I've always, you know, if you ask somebody, um, when was the first time you knew you were a man or a woman, if you're cisgendered, most people won't even think about it. They won't well, always. It just always was. And I think that's what comes out in Evie's story is, you know, Evie's always, it always was. And 
something that jumped out in Evie's story too was just how different it can be being in the being one county over from a different <laughs> and you know I can speak from personal experience having had a very similar experience you know in the state that I'm in um, and how challenging that can be to be vulnerable and know what you need and know what you want and to do all of the things that um, are externally imposed upon you to validate your identity and still have someone tell you no and then to walk to across a line and have you know that community tell you yes um, really affirming and wonderful that you know Evie had access to that other county and really difficult that these sort of invisible lines made it more challenging for Evie. Yeah. Yeah, the lines we draw are kind of insidious. <laughs> I I want to shift a little bit and talk about the standards of care for the two of you who are physicians if you could help me understand in the pediatric community and the endocrinology community what are the sort of standards of care the clinical guidelines for treating pediatric patients who, who come with some gender identity issue that needs attention. And I'll tell you what my ulterior motive in asking the question is. There's a lot of criticism in the public sphere at the moment in state legislatures, school boards, and other places where specific aspects of uh, medical care for pediatric patients in transition are being criticized, and I want to understand the bigger picture. Like, what is the standard of care, and where do these things that are criticized, where do they fit? So the standards of care, I think there's two, at least when I think about them, there's there's two main standards. There's the the WPASS standards, so the World um, Professionals Association for Transgender Health um, has their standards of care. They're version 7. Um, we're waiting for version 8 to come out. It's supposed to come out this spring, um, and so we're waiting for that next set to come out. Um, and then specifically from an endocrine standpoint, the Endocrine Society in conjunction with the Pediatric Endocrine Society, the European Society for Pediatric Endocrinology, and WPATH, and I forget who else was in it, uh, in on that, um, published standards of, of um, treatment as well. So from my standpoint, I kind of have like two different standards that I look at. And those standards really state that, you know, if a child is expressing concerns about their gender compared to their assigned sex at birth, that they are treated in an affirming, supportive, and loving way. And as they get older, that if they're, if that's you know something that's still ongoing, then that we can use puberty blockers to um, pause puberty um, to allow them additional time to you know to work on their gender doesn't sound quite right because it's not like they need to necessarily work on it, but gives them time to ensure that their gender identity um, is is um, consistent. And then as they get older, then um, affirming hormone therapy can be done as well. That, those fall within the, the standards of care when it comes to what's published. Puberty blocking therapy, Dr. Brown, is really a flashpoint for a lot of people, at least in the popular press. Um, your colleagues, how are they responding to that criticism in the public sphere? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's interesting to me that it is, as you say, such a flashpoint um, in that it's a reversible treatment. Um, it doesn't cause any, anything permanent. 
it buys that child time. Um, it buys the family time um, without any reversible changes being done. But it gives them time to talk with a therapist, consider their gender, work with their family. I guess maybe a better term is explore. Well, explore their gender. Um, because it's, again, we've, as we said before, it's, you know, it's appropriate to explore gender. That's a normal part of development. Um, and gender is not necessarily set. Um, and it is something that people, as they go through their life, um, do explore. Um, and do consider. And so um, that's just a normal part of being a human. Um, and this uh, um, allows them time to explore their gender without attaining additional changes that may not align with their um, gender identity. Um, and that can decrease the need for um, surgeries and other treatments in the future and um, can allow them to um, present in, in, you know, in their affirmed gender more easily, you know, as they want to look. Um, not that we're forcing some look upon them, but as they want to look. And it can make a huge difference. Um, and in uh, these, you know, early adolescent kids who are questioning their gender or exploring their gender, um, puberty can be so um, scary for them. Their body is changing in ways that don't align with them. And that's where we start seeing much higher rates of depression and anxiety, problems in school, behavioral concerns, because all of this is really um, just exploding in front of them. And when you um, can pause that and give them time to work through it, then um, you see those levels improve. Um, you see their quality of life improve. Um, and not every person who goes on puberty blockers goes on affirming hormone therapy. Um, I've heard that said. It's not true. They don't all, but it gives them the time to, to explore and to work on that and to find what's the right path for them because, again, they're the ones who know. We don't know. We can't force and we should not try to force a path on them. We need to allow them to find their path and then support them on that. Yeah, I was just going to say that the um, those two societies um, and, and those guidelines are out there uh, with very specific uh, guidelines about treatment. But the American Academy of Pediatrics and Society for Adolescent Health also have policy statements supporting gender-affirming care. And, and that's really important. Um, so, again, they've looked at those guidelines and support treating young people. We've included links to these documents that have been published by the various medical associations. You'll find them on our website, hearmenowpodcast.org. Bentley Moses, what do you make of all this? I am. I mean, I'm not a pediatrician or an adolescent uh, medicine specialist, but speaking from, you know, personal experience, I really appreciated what Dr. Drury Brown said about helping people find their path and giving them the time to find their path. I mean, reflecting on some of the stories we were listening to, uh, it can be really difficult for you know children to um, get the footing that they need to understand and fully express their gender identity. Because, as you know, kind of we heard with Sam and Evie, like 
there aren't always examples or, you know, you don't always have, we have a world that's very um, modeled for a pretty binary set of examples. And so to put your true self forward, there are going to be people that might say things and treat you poorly. And we know that, I mean, based on how much we see, you know, a a lot of struggling from these people from, you know, the instances of suicidality and self-harm are really high in transgender populations. Um, So to be able to express your true self and to have the time to do that and the um, freedom to not have to experience aspects of puberty that maybe you're just not ready for is very empowering. Um, So I'm really grateful to, I mean, Dr. Dre Brown and Dr. Peck Priya, what you both do for this community, because it's just life-saving for people. Um, And I don't think that you can underscore that enough, how life-saving it is to have access to healthcare that really allows you um, the space to breathe and be yourself. I I really appreciate you saying that. And beyond the healthcare community or setting, I think it's also true that there are other parts of the community that can be incredibly affirming. And there are examples of people who are providing a place of welcome and affirmation, and we shouldn't overlook their contribution to the good of children who are questioning their identity. Absolutely. I mean, your community is so important in helping you thrive. And we know that for children of any gender identity. And so organizations and groups and parents and aunties and cousins and family members and, you know, systems and structures that are giving that positive support um, are life affirming. And we do that for children of all kinds. Um, And so... I'm just really grateful for the inclusion of transgender children and they're just kids, like let them be kids and support them. Um, so I, I have a lot of gratitude for those community members that really make it possible for children to thrive in those environments. I want to play another excerpt for you. When we were thinking about how to structure this episode, one of the ideas that we settled on pretty early on was let's invite a couple Uh, two parents to sit down and talk about the experience of parenting a a young trans kid. And we stumbled upon Daniel and Karen Bogard, and I'm very glad that we did because they tell a really incredible series of stories, and I want you to hear an excerpt from part of that. What is your earliest memory, like having some inkling that maybe our child was genderqueer? Well, I remember when we lived in our first home. And I remember cleaning out his older brother's closet. And I remember him going through the bin and pulling out his older brother's stuff. And I kept saying, you have your own clothes, you don't need his hand-me-downs. And that's what he wanted to wear. Yeah, and he would have been all of, what, two, Three? three? Yeah, that's my first memory too, is him insisting from the moment he had any choice at all, I mean, really before he even was speaking in full sentences, that he wanted to wear boys clothing and in particular boys underwear that always stood out because it's private, right? It's not like it's about your public presentation. Right. So my next memory, I don't know about you. I was putting him to bed one night. I was putting him all to bed and seeing their Mm. songs. And he turned to me and said, daddy, do you think God could make me over again as a boy? 
Um, and I remember going in and I remember telling you about that. Uh, and I remember us kind of laughing and saying, well, we are either going to always remember this conversation <laughs> uh, or it's going to end up being a no big deal. Nothing of a conversation. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that's it was at that point when things started accelerating a little bit. I remember that conversation, too. So he came to us with a new name the day before lockdown. March 13th. March 13th. It was just two years. And he said the name to me, and the very first time I thought, my God, that name fits you better than, mm-hmm. than the name we had originally given you. And so we were home. They finished that year of kindergarten on Zoom, mm-hmm. and then for first grade, we're going back in person. And we were so ootsy about the idea of the kids going to in-person yeah. school during COVID yep. that we never even called or contacted the school <laughs> about the fact that, that he had transitioned genders and names. I know. Now, people knew, like the kindergarten teacher knew, the I principal knew name in the system. The enrollment. Said, but we never had, a we never had a conversation with them. And the reality is we never needed to. That there was no... no there has been no drama at school. There's been no drama with his friends. There's no been no drama socially. Um, they even, right, like in his first grade class, they threw a little party for him on the one year anniversary of his transition. Yeah. Um, the yeah. rabbi, he goes to the Jewish school. The rabbi knit him a kippah, a head covering traditionally worn by men. Uh, in trans colors. In, in the, the pink and blue and uh, white. Of the trans flag, yeah. right? I can't even say it without crying a little. Yeah. Um, at our synagogue, he's been embraced and loved as who he is in a really drama-free way. But immediately, it became clear that if we were going to love and support and affirm our trans kid, it meant we were going to have to defend him from our state legislators. Before we had told our parents, before we had told the school, before we had told anyone but really our immediate family at home, we had told the General Laws Committee of the Missouri House because immediately it was clear that our government was at war with our family and with our child. Picking on things that really aren't their business. Yeah, right, exactly. It's really like about him and our family and the decisions we make with our doctors and our medical providers, and it really has nothing to do with the state government. There is a sense of evil that just seeps out of the place. And frankly, there's a sense of white Christian nationalism that is reinforced everywhere you go in that building. We talk about separation of church and state, but I think we all know, especially now, that that's really not true. Because there's no reason why someone should go after children. Children. People in general. I mean... It's awful. And we are all created equal in the image of God. And I believe that for my child, and I believe that for every person in this world, that we are created to be just exactly as we are. Yeah. This notion of being B'Tselem Elohim, that all of us, all of us are images of the divine and reflections of perfection. It's incredibly powerful because... It's a reminder that trans folk and their experience are sacred as well. There are stories which speak to the sacredness of trans folk, but also that just speak to the existence of trans folk. 
that there have always been trans people, that this has always been one of the expressions of what it means to be human. That's Rabbi Daniel Bogard in conversation with Rabbi Karen Bogard, talking about their family and their advocacy work as parents of a trans child in the state of Missouri. You can hear more of the Bogard story on our website, hearmenowpodcast.org. What do you think of those two? I was um, kind of speechless just listening to them talk about their kids and um, the school environment and um, going back to school and forgetting to mention that one big thing. Uh, I really enjoyed that one. Sounds like a very normal parent moment. <laughs> um, but I was I was pleased for them that it was actually a smooth transition because for many of my patients, it's actually a huge point of contention being able to be called by your preferred name and your preferred pronoun and to get it changed on rosters and roll calls and um, how frustrating and sad it is for some of them and difficult when they go to school and there's a substitute who calls them, who misgenders them and, and calls them by the wrong name or pronoun and it's, it, it ruins their day. It, it makes it really tough to want to go to school and be at school. So it was nice to hear something different. I just really appreciated him talking about how all of us, every human, right, is a reflection of the divine of perfection. When I think about myself and my own life and who I am, I don't know that I feel like that I live up to that, to be a reflection of perfection. But we that, that's there. It's, it's there for all of us. Um, and uh, I wished everybody believed that we could all understand that every person is in the image of God. I really appreciate them, them calling out that there have been transgender people throughout humanities and that we're all we're all human we're all that reflection and and we all deserve um acknowledgement agree i mean i think that was really i mean it's powerful and true and honest and that you know uh really stood out to me in like just affirmation of we all deserve to live as we are and god intended us to live as we are um and I also love highlighting, you know, we're not all perfect and trans people are just people too. You know, I, I love the like, like Dr. Pecprio was saying, you know, how wonderful it was that they forgot to change the name at school, but there was not a problem. School was no big deal and the community was fine with it. And it was just so normal, for lack of a better way, or just, you know, typical and and not, this is like going to sound dismissive, but not interesting, which in a funny way is like ugh, relieving. Like I get this huge sense of relief <laughs> just hearing that story, like how nothing that experience was. And I, I wish that for everyone in this process that you change the pronouns. It's simple and nothing because it's a process sometimes and it is exhausting to go through regardless of how you know where you are and and who you are and as a child I think can be particularly difficult because your autonomy looks different you are so connected to people in your life and we're all connected to people in our life but you're really dependent on people to help you in those systems in a way that maybe as adults we kind of forget um, and that can be really challenging and exhausting and you're you just you're just a kid like just 
I love the normalcy of that. And juxtaposed against how extraordinary these two parents are advocating at the state level and just really going all the way to support their child and how much power and resilience it takes to do that and to step into that plate. And I'm so grateful they're doing that. And how wonderful would it be if they didn't have to and it could just be mundane and they could just forget to change the name and it wouldn't be a big deal and life would go on. I, I, I want that future. Yeah, the joy of banality. Yeah, <laughs> it's relieving. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the f- phrase that sticks in my soul is Rabbi Daniel saying that what seemed to be important for their son was wearing boys' underwear. And then he, then he said, because it's, it's hidden, it's not part of your external presentation. And I, th- I ref- have reflected on that and thought, th- th- he's describing the behavior of a three-year-old, right? And, and the wisdom of, like, I'm going to try this out. I'm going to give this a trial. <laughs> you know, I'm going to start with underwear and see where it goes from there. And there's, there's something profoundly um, powerful about a three-year-old having the insight to start small and see where it goes. I also think in hearing that story too, it really affirmed for me that doing this is for, it's for them, it's for that child. I'm doing this for me, I'm making this choice for me. It's not because I need the world to necessarily know something one way or another. I I feel good this way, this is who I am and I want to express myself authentically. And that's like so tied to what we were talking about of how do you know someone can know themselves that early nobody's going to see it it's for them and that is such a direct connection to expressing who you are we talk about gender affirming care and it's often seen as sort of something that comes at us extrinsically you know someone affirms us and um, the bogard son is sort of affirming himself there's some self-affirmation that's going on there that um, I think shows real strength. And kudos to the parents for allowing it too, right? For not saying, no, you have to wear this other underwear. Saying, okay, you can wear that underwear. That's fine. Yeah. It's Again, you, like we said earlier, Sean, I mean, that child knows their gender. And they say, my underwear should fit with my gender. I wear the right underwear. And I would like it to have Power Rangers on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, talk to me about conversations with parents, how you see your role in helping them understand what's going on with their kids? Oh, that's a, that's a broad question. Um, I see the gamut. Um, I see parents who are fully supportive, bringing their child in, having had multiple conversations about gender and um, how they're doing, and they come in with an idea or a plan about what they want to do or want to seek more information about what they want to do, um, even if it is um, something as, as, as simple to start with social transitioning or if they are wanting to pursue a provider who can provide cross-hormone treatment. Um, again, most of my patients are a little bit past the beginning of puberty, so we don't necessarily always talk about puberty blockers. Um, and then I've seen parents who um, have really struggle with accepting where their child is and uh, struggling 
with how to have a conversation with their child about it. And those are probably, I would say, the more difficult ones. And it's, it's painful for everybody. It's painful for the child. It's painful for the parents because they're not on the same page. And, and that, I would say, is some of the most difficult conversations is when they're not on the same page and, and can't get onto the same page. And I've had some parents who were really well-intentioned and thought they were doing the right thing, but couldn't quite say, you know, the right pronoun. And um, I've had parents call their child it. I, it was painful. It was really painful. Um, or the kid, you know, and um, they thought it was gender neutral in, in, in their opinion, but it didn't come across that way to, to everybody else. And so, um, you know, being able to have those conversations with parents without being judgy, um, to really kind of find out where they're coming from, um, and, and understanding why kids sometimes have a really hard time coming out to their parents. Um, I, if they haven't come out to their parents, I will always ask the, kid, the child first, the adolescent first, you know, how do you think your mom will react or your dad or, you know, your, your moms and dads, you know, and, and they'll tell me and, um, we come up with different ideas about how to talk to them and, and communication, I would say is probably the biggest thing that we work on is how do we talk to each other so we can hear each other and we can be respectful and have that space to explore. Because if I feel you're going to shut me down, that adolescent isn't going to talk. And then they're going to be stuck with all these feelings inside and sharing with everybody but the person they really should be talking to who's their parent. So I actually would be very curious to see how many adolescents, uh, kids, come out to their friends first before they approach their family. I would fathom that it's actually quite a large percent. It's safe. I get to explore there. You know, my friends accept me for who I am, so I'm going to explore. Yeah, I was... um... I was going to say one of the questions that I ask almost all parents when I'm seeing a new patient is, um, were you surprised when your child talked to you about this? Um, because it's, it's an easy way to little, get a sense of what they were thinking at the time. Um, and some parents were completely not surprised. They saw it coming. They knew. Um, and some were floored and didn't see it coming at all and had no idea. Um, and so it gives me a, a way of, of kind of finding out where the parents are at, how are they doing, um, by just, you know, kind of a, a simple question. Um, I think one of the things that I, that I try to do with, with all parents, no matter how um, uh, easy the news was for them, um, is just to validate their experience. You know, I think that's really important. Um, these parents love their kids, right? They want what's best for their child. Um, sometimes they've got a ways to go. <laughs> um, and it's a lot of learning for, for a lot of them. Um, and a lot, sometimes there are, um, you know, cultural backgrounds or family backgrounds that, you know, they're worried about. Um, but they all they all love their child. They all love their, their children and, and really want what's best for them. And so I like to be able to connect with them at that level, um, let them understand that that I value them as a parent and for the love they have for their child. And I'm here to help them as well. Um, the child is my patient <laughs> or the adolescent is my patient. Um, 
But I think it's so important to develop that relationship with the parent as well. So you can um, really build toward a common goal and, and get them there. And some are already there when they come, you know, and some have a ways to go. But um, it's good to be able to validate their experience, um, acknowledge that they may be going through a grieving experience. Um, it's It really can change the projected life trajectory of their child. It doesn't mean it's worse. It's just it's just different, and and they have to adjust to that. Um, and and I've you know had many patients where over the t- you know over over years of being with them, you know they've made that adjustment and they can see all these benefits where they're at now. But initially, there's there's a grieving process, um, and that's okay. And for the most part, I would say um, usually these are like adolescent patients where they. Those they those they kind of get that they they can understand a little bit of that and and you can talk to them about that and say you know I know where you're at and you've been thinking about this for a long time and yeah maybe you came out to your friends a year ago even and now your parents know and here's kind of what they're going through and they can understand that they still want them to get along and and to come along some more but they can understand that too and I think just being able to acknowledge some of that and talk about it and um, and allow for that can be really helpful, um, and you know, and and help um, move the entire process forward too. I really appreciate. I mean, the way that both of you kind of highlighted affirming, you know, the patient's experience and also the parent's experience. I mean, change is hard. <laughs> it's hard for everyone, and this is something that I think that um, challenges a lot of people's perceptions and expectations. Um, and there's certainly the the process that you're going to go through medically, but there's the process that you're going to go through with your community and socially and interpersonally and um, having those conversations and validating all of the feelings that go with that, I, I think are just as important as providing um, people with the tools for the specific medical care that they want. So um, I just want to emphasize kind of what you each shared about going through those conversations with patients themselves and also with the the families and the parents who are maybe at different places, you know, and I love underscoring because I think this is just universally true. Parents love their children. They want the best for their children. And sometimes when you are going through that process with a transgender patient, it's just, it's a new thing and it's totally different and it's change in a way that some parents maybe are, um, a little more prepared to walk through that and some might need some more support and that's wonderful. They still love their kids. I, I don't quite know how to a- ask this question and I'm going to ask all three of you to take a swing at it. Um, it strikes me that some of the burden comes from outside of these kids. It's not some intrinsic um, problem with transitioning, it's what gets laid on them by society or by parents or by neighbors or by people at school, and that and that dealing with other people's reaction to them can be the hard part. Especially when it's family. You know, so a patient that I saw recently, um, the, the parents are, are very supportive. Um, but the grandparents are not, and they've been uninvited to family events. I mean, 
there's a lot of hurt in that. And I would think as a child, it would be hard not to have some, to take some blame for that, right? As a kid, you're going to blame yourself for that. Not that they should. It's not their it's not that they're at fault. The grandparents have some work to do. Um, but yeah, there, there are, there, I mean, that's just one example of so many where I feel like the, the, the child or the person um, almost gets blamed for the reaction of others, right? You know, we, we, we teach our kids, or at least I'm mm-hmm. trying to teach mine, um, you know, you have control over, over your response to a situation you can't control somebody else's response, um, but you have control over your response. And in many of those situations, I feel like it is there's blame to that to the child. Well, you know, it's because you're trans that X, Y, or Z. No, <laughs> that's actually your decision. Sort of a hallmark of abusive behavior, isn't it? That exactly. That you made me hit you. Yeah, it's because you're trans. Yeah. And I feel like, um, I mean, so many parents are so worried about that as well. For, like trying to, they want to be able to protect their, their children from those types of interactions and, and things. Um, I think that's part of the concern that comes up is, you know, how can I protect my child through this um, and wanting to be able to keep them safe? You know, like you, you mentioned earlier, the rates of depression and suicide are, are higher um, in in um children and adolescents who who are um, who are trans um and and i have parents who come who are so worried about that understandably right um and so you know they're just trying to do their best to be able to provide their child with a supportive environment and protect them from some of these external um circumstances and situations and things to be able to to keep them safe what can we do to protect kids so the the what studies have shown is the best way to help protect our kids is really having a supportive and loving, affirming family. And um, in children who have been affirmed and supportive by their family, um, when compared with um, sibling matches, they've had similar rates of depression and anxiety um, within across, um, across families. And so having that affirming supportive family is super helpful in helping to protect our kids. Um, Now, if you have a child who's older and is depressed or has had anxiety, don't blame, don't blame yourself as a parent, you know, like life happens, but where are you at now? And what can you do now? You can love your child. You can affirm your child, support them. And that makes a huge difference. When you talk about um, gender dysphoria, are are we talking about an individual's unhappiness with their situation, or are we talking about an individual dealing with negative uh, sort of criticism, opprobrium, uh, coming from outside of themselves, or are are they both are both considered dysphoria? I feel like it's both, to be honest. Um, when a young person looks at themselves in the mirror and they don't see the body that they feel like they should be in, it's incredibly upsetting for them. And then when they go out into the world and they feel like they have to constantly um, state their gender, state their identity, justify themselves all the time, if they're worrying about passing as the gender they, they see themselves as, it feels invalidating every day. 
every moment and that it wears on them. So not only just internally, but externally, because the world around them doesn't see them the way that they feel. And um, it can be very wearing because they don't know when it's going to come. They don't know who's going to say it or misgender them. And um, it's a constant everyday vigilance of like, who's going to say the right words or wrong words. Yeah, I agree. I think it's, it's both and, you know, kind of um, those societal expectations for gender assignment for all of us are, is, are harmful for anyone. Um, you know, if you're cisgender, the stereotypes of like boys don't cry or, you know, people, women should cook, things like that, that are, you know, harmful and um, externally invalidate cis people as well um you know and in, in with trans youth and, and trans people in general i think it's just amplified you end up seeing it more presently um and in some of that like that dysphoria certainly comes from you know external forces might come from internal forces but let's say you don't have any internal dysphoria let's say you're very comfortable with your presentation and your body and who you are, and you're still trans. Um, that's absolutely a path that someone could have. Um, but the way that you're expressing yourself doesn't fit within those societal expectations for how someone might, you know, go in a stereotypical male or female category. Um, and so that external influence from outside is what could give you discomfort and fear. Um, so it's, it's both. And I think it's also, um, along a spectrum for everyone, um, transgender people in particular, but I, I would argue that that's something that we can probably all relate to, um, feeling like there were expectations societally about us that didn't fit how we wanted to express ourselves, regardless of what our gender identity was. Um, it doesn't feel good to be put into a box about how you're supposed to present or, or what a, what a man or a woman is. Right. I want to introduce you to one last storyteller for us, uh, during this episode. Vinny is an educator and trainer for LGBTQI plus healthcare. They talk about how they came to understand their gender identity. I am a queer, non-binary transgender person. And I first realized that I wasn't cisgender, probably kindergarten. I can remember back that far, just having this feeling of, I don't want to be a girl. I don't want to be a boy. Why do I have to be either? Why can't I be both? Why can't I go back and forth? But I didn't have the language for that. I grew up in the deep South. I am originally from Georgia. And growing up, I didn't hear words like transgender or queer unless it was as an insult. Even things as simple as being gay, I didn't hear about that until probably my teen years because no one talked about it. So growing up, I had these feelings, but I had no words for them. And on top of that, because I grew up in a very conservative household, very Catholic household, gender roles were firm. And I was assigned female at birth, so I was socialized as a girl. And if I deviated too far from that feminine, I was ostracized or punished because it just wasn't, it wasn't acceptable. Like you could be a tomboy, but there was a limit. And if you went over that, it was too much. I didn't 
know about transgender beyond, you know, trash TV like Maury, where they'd have trans women come on and guess who's a man, guess who's a woman, or Law and Order SVU, where every transgender person was just a sex worker. I never had like any positive, real examples of transgender people until I got to college when a friend of mine was dating uh, someone who was trans. That's when I started becoming curious. And then I kept learning and I would read stories. I would watch videos of transgender people. And just without realizing it, I was relating to so much that was being said in all of these stories. And then I learned in my mid-20s about non-binary. And at first, my I couldn't get it. I just thought like, oh, that's no, no, no. There's that's just man and woman. I, no, that's the end of it. But then I started reading more and looking at it more. And one day, my brain just clicked, and it went, oh, that's what I've been feeling all of my life. I don't have to be one or the other. I can be both. I can be neither. I can slide back and forth. And it was just a moment of clarity. And at one point it was just, oh my God, I finally get it. But it was also, oh no, how do I tell people? That's Vinny, who was speaking with their husband, Henry. You can hear more of their conversation on our website, hearmenowpodcast.org. So I want to turn to the three of you one last time before we wind things up and see, um, do you want to comment on Vinny? Do you want to offer sort of a takeaway for, for the hour? I really appreciate Vinny sharing just like how complex <laughs> figuring out your identity can be as a... I am also a trans non-binary person, um, queer, and oh my gosh, this story resonates so much and how exciting and inspiring it is to like learn the things along the way and then also how confusing and disheartening and every time you get a piece of information, you're like, okay, great, like what do I do with this? How do I talk about this? Um, There's a really great Netflix documentary from 2020 that Laverne Cox put on um, that is about transgender representation in media. And I think we've talked a little bit about this throughout the podcast, just like what it looks like to have, because we get a lot of our identity from what we see around us and who's in our community and how things are represented in media. And um, I love that, you know, Vinny sort of highlighted, there's a lot of challenging representation (laughs) in media about trans people. And that can be really disheartening when you are trying to explore yourself and understand yourself and I'm really excited that that's changing I'm thrilled that there's better representation coming out and that I'm hoping that kids get different opportunities to see themselves Um, and that there's more language that has evolved and been brought forward granted I'm sure that language existed hundreds thousands of years ago when we've lost it and we're finding it again you know uh, trans people have been around for eons like the rest of humanity um so i i I love in closing you know just kind of what vinnie brought up of it's complex it's a winding road um it's hard to be a person (laughs) and i (laughs) i think we all can relate to that and you know 
being a trans person is it's complex but also being a person is complex and so i'm i'm just happy that um you know people like finney can continue to share their story and and that we have providers like dr jerry brown and dr peck prio holding people's hands and giving them the resources that they need to to step forward on that journey because it's really great to be yourself yeah it feels good benley i'm so glad you you contributed that and i'm so glad that you helped us put this podcast together thank you oh, thank you so much dr brown i still am almost speechless from Vinny. i just think um you know there's <laughs> just a beauty in those words and an honesty in them that um, I think that we should all respect. Um, as I think over our uh, over our discussion and our talk today, I guess um, what I keep coming back to is that it is, it is appropriate to trust the person who is telling us about their experience and who they are. Uh, they know themselves and we can trust that. If you yeah. know yourself and, and, and can trust yourself, then you should be able to uh, give that same trust to another person to, um, to be able to say who they are. And as each person is made in the image of God, they should all be respected and loved as well and allowed to be themselves and be supported to be who, who they should be. Um, and to bring a little science back into it, one thing we haven't mentioned yet is the study that just came out this past week um, that looked at a cohort of over 300 children um, five years after social transition and um, two and a half percent had gone back to their um, gender uh, that was assigned at birth. But that means that 97.5 percent remained trans or were, um, were, or were non-binary. Um, and they, these kids, they know who they are and they remain who they are. And it is appropriate to explore and lots of children explore. And in allowing that exploration, there are some who will come back and that's okay too. But we can trust these kids to tell yeah. us who they are and, and support them in that journey. I don't know if it's because I'm a radio producer by training, but I'm always listening for echoes. And um, over the course of the last six months on this podcast, this notion of of narrative medicine, trusting what the patient says about themselves, that they that the the first job of the clinician is to listen to the patient, trauma informed care. Don't ask, you know, what's wrong with you. Ask what's happened with you. Tell me your story. Um, I think it's one of the reasons why we wanted to produce this episode, because we realize there's power in that storytelling. And those stories that the three of you have been telling us, but also in the stories that, that we pre-recorded and that are sitting in a longer format on our website. I mean, these, these conversations go on for 30 or 40 minutes, and I really encourage people to dig in. Um, Bentley, you mentioned, you know, there, there were ancient names for for the variety of human existences um, that's something the bogards talk about and how hebrew scripture contains all sorts of examples of the presence of trans people in the community 
um, it's fascinating. Um, and I'm, I'm really glad that uh, they participated in this. Dr. Peck Preo, I'm going to give you the last word. <laughs> um, thank you, Sean. Um, just really quick, going back to Vinny's story, I, I think what I took away from that was was actually at the end of how grounded Vinny sounded, how self-assured, how confident Vinny sounded, and and that it did take a while to explore and figure out who Vinny was. And my parting words for parents and kids and teens is have those conversations. It's not easy. Parents didn't come with an instruction book. Kids did not come with an instruction book. And so, um, it, it, it takes a little bit of trial and error to figure out how to talk to each other about something that can be divisive or difficult, um, but also um, bonding at the same time. And um, when kids share something with parents they feel is important, there's a level of trust that's implicit in that dis discussion. And that trust is there and if you're listening you'll build on that trust if if fear um anger or other negative emotions come into play grief you know sometimes it's hard to listen and that trust um is vulnerable then and we want to keep those roads of communication open with our children so that they can talk to us during this journey, which can take a very long time to figure out who we are. We all are still figuring out who we are. So that journey never ends. I'm just going to say that. Um, <laughs> and um, having those open lines of communication and talking about it, even if you don't always agree, um, helps build competent children who are self-assured, who are grounded, who feel like they have a sense of control in their life when there's so much out of control in their life. And um, parents then can also role model problem solving skills, communication skills, but also um, kids can learn how to practice coping skills with their parents because they're the safe ones. That's why we lash out at our parents is because they're <laughs> they unconditionally love us theoretically. And, um, you know, we try again. So, um, you know, I just kind of put that out there for parents and kids is just to try to keep those roads of communication open. I want to thank all three of you for committing this time to the conversation. I'm so grateful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. Panrat Pakpreo is a pediatrician focusing on adolescent health, the Providence Medical Group in Spokane, Washington. Marcy Drury Brown is a pediatric endocrinologist at Providence St. Vincent Medical Center in Portland, Oregon. And Bentley Moses is the Senior Program Manager for the Providence Institute for Human Caring's Trans Plus Health Initiative. Huge thanks to everyone who told their story for this podcast episode. Erin Pelger and her son, Sam, Evie and her mom, Holly, Rabbis Karen and Daniel Bogard, and Vinnie Fox. You'll find extended versions of all of those conversations and a half dozen additional stories about gender-affirming healthcare on our website, hearmenowpodcast.org. 
These stories are being archived at the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress. Don't forget, we've collected a lot of resources for you on our website with information for clinicians, parents, and individuals wanting to learn more about Trans Plus Healthcare. Just point your web browser to Hear Me Now Podcast, all one word, dot org. The Hear Me Now Podcast is a production of the Providence Institute for Human Caring. Connect with us on Twitter, where we're human underscore caring. The program is produced by Scott Acord and Melody Fawcett. We have research help from medical librarians Amanda Schwartz, Seema Bakta, Sarah Viscuso, Catherine Gibbs, Carrie Grinstead, and Heather Martin. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal. The executive producer is Michael Drummond. I'm Sean Collins. Thanks so much for listening. Be well. <laughs>